0: Okay, folks, welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Joy, and I'm joined by Yingyi and Cheng, and we both work with Koolabar Capital Investments. Koolabar is a global fixed income manager, and we're responsible for running $7.6 billion in funds under management. We record this podcast once a month, and the purpose of the podcast is to unpack tricky financial market issues of the day. Okay, team, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Yingers, are you
1: there? How are you? I'm here. I'm great, thank you. It's been a while.
0: It certainly has. I think we recorded last on the 27th of April and we've certainly been super busy ever since. Sorry for missing May and June, folks. We did get quite a few requests to re-record. So this is it, live and unedited. So uh, we've been very, very busy. Just by way of background, my team at Coolabar Capital comprises of 38 executives, including 12 traders and portfolio managers and 12 analysts spread between London, Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, since the start of last year, we have bought and sold over I think now $112 billion of bonds and credit. So we're very actively engaged in those markets, including sovereign bonds, bank bonds, corporate bonds, and asset-backed securities. So with all of that in mind, Yingers, do you want to kick off by just running us through what actually happened in the month of June? How did markets fare and how did we uh, close out the financial year? Thanks.
1: Sure. So June marked another month in which Kulabar's strategies drove consistently robust returns and alpha over benchmarks. It also capped off what has been a class-leading financial year performance-wise for Kulabar's portfolios despite the extraordinary volatility in global bond and interest rate markets. Coolabar's zero interest rate duration long short credit fund, which has an average A credit rating, returned 2% in June gross or 1.6% net, delivering a healthy 10.4% gross or between 82 to 8.4% net return over the 12 months of the 2023 financial year. It is currently yielding 7.8% per annum gross. Since its launch in December 2022, our new zero interest rate duration floating rate high yield fund has similarly outperformed, returning 1.5% gross or 1.4% net in absolute terms in June and delivering 7.3% gross or between 67 to 6.8% net over the seven months since its inception. This has been powered by a combination of trading alpha and the fund's robust yield of 8.9% per annum gross. And this strategy, by the way, has an average rating of A minus. In the lower volatility cash-enhanced sector, Koulibar's Zero Interest Rate Duration Smarter Money Fund and Smarter Money Higher Income Fund, which carry average A ratings, have materially outperformed the Oswan Bank Bill Index and Oswan Floating Rate Note Index. Over the last 12 months, the Smarter Money Fund and the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund have returned 4.9% and 5.3% gross, or 42 to 4.5% net, respectively. Compared to the RBA cash rates, 2.9%, the bank bill indexes, 2.9%, and the FRN indexes, 4%. They are now yielding around 53 to 5.4% per annum gross. While long-duration bonds have been buffeted by high interest rates, the class-leading Kulabar Active Composite Bond Fund beat its benchmark, the Osborne Composite Bond Index, by a significant 0.4% in June after fees. It has outperformed the Composite Bond Index by 2.7% over the last 12 months' net of fees. In total return terms, the Kulabar Active Composite Bond Fund has delivered 4.5% gross or 4% net over the past year compared to the Composite Bond Index's 1.2%. It is currently yielding 6.6% per annum gross. In June, floating rate bonds once again outperformed their fixed rate equivalents with the Osborne Floating Rate Note Index returning 0.41% compared to the 1.95% loss posted by the fixed rate Osborne Composite Bond Index, which is all a function of interest rate duration risk underperforming. The latter was attributable to further increases in bond yields on the back of concerns regarding sticky inflation pressures, Note that the Australian 10-year government bond yield jumped from 3.62% to 4.02% in June. While the major bank's five-year senior bond spreads hardly shifted in June, contracting from 90 basis points to 89 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate, there was some performance in major bank tier two bond markets as spreads declined from 218 basis points to 209 basis points over BBSW or the bank bill swap rate. The standout in June was, however, the ASX hybrid market, where spreads on 5-year maker bank hybrids were crushed from 323 basis points to 292 basis points over BBSW, as CBA's new $1.55 billion hybrid, known as CBAPM, was finally absorbed. And the BBSW rate itself has continued to climb from its 0% level in 2021 and hitting 4.35% in June. There was also some decent performance in the state government bond market, or semis, where 10-year New South Wales spreads compressed from 72 basis points over Commonwealth government bonds to 67 basis points over the month. Coolbar's alpha was primarily attributable to active trading in both the primary and secondary markets, which continue to generate very attractive opportunities for us. Performance was also aided by our very strong underlying yields in our portfolios. So, Chris, turning to macro now, what's the latest on Aussie inflation?
0: Yeah, Ying, sadly, the news is not very good. We discovered that based on the latest monthly inflation data for May, there was actually an acceleration in underlying or core consumer price inflation which rose on our numbers 0.5% in May, up from 0.2% in April. And this made a striking contrast to the much more widely reported deceleration in the headline inflation rate in the month of May, which I think had faked a few participants. It's important to note that this headline inflation rate is exceedingly volatile. And whilst it declined in May due partly to uh, a slump in fuel prices, there are massive price hikes slated for electricity in the month of July. so if we look through that monthly data to the trend movements, what we find is that on a rolling three-month basis to May, core inflation in Australia has actually been expanding at a 5.2% annualised pace, which regrettably is not improving or decelerating at the rate that the RBA had assumed in its modelling and forecasts. So when we interpolate the RBA's forecasts for quarterly core inflation, what we find is that they imply that annualised inflation should have been around 4.5% in the month of May in trend terms rather than the 5.2% estimate that we get on a rolling annual quarterly basis. So unfortunately, we fear that the RBA may be forced to nudge up its near-term forecasts for underlying inflation in the August Statement of Monetary Policy. And this is consistent with the dynamics that we're seeing globally, where we've seen a shift from supply side or goods inflation driving the overall global inflation pulse to the advent of demand side or services inflation, which is being driven by very tight global labour markets. And the worry is that that services inflation can be very sticky and persistent and may in turn precipitate a protracted hiking cycle.
1: And Chris, with that in mind, can you give us an update on where the RBA cash rate is heading right now?
0: Yeah, sure, Ying is. So the RBA cash rate is 4.1% currently. The slightly scary thing is that's only a smidge above the RBA's estimate of its neutral or normal cash rate that would be neither contractionary nor stimulatory in respect of inflation. Specifically, the RBA estimates that its neutral cash rate is 3.8%. We know that for two reasons. Firstly, in recent Freedom of Information disclosures uh, released by the RBA on request, uh, they showed that their internal modelling had bumped up very significantly their estimates of neutral. So a year ago, the governor, Phil Lowe, had been running around telling people that neutral, he thought, was at least 2.5%. Now, based on this new FOI release, we know that the RBA's internal modelling actually suggests that neutral is now 3.8%. So we're 0.3% above that level. What's interesting is based on that FOI release, we also know that for the RBA to get core inflation back below the top end of its 2 to 3% target band by 2025, it believes it has to increase the cash rate to about 4.8%. Now, this just happens to be in line with current market pricing for the RBA's terminal rate, which is around 4.7%. And the consequence of that would basically be a recession with Australia's unemployment rate increasing materially to just under 5%. What's concerning, how? is that the RBA is actually saying they won't get to the midpoint of their target ban until 2026. And that's just simply too far away. Recent survey evidence shows uh, that central bank credibility has been decaying quite dramatically, Yinger's. And we've seen, for example, the Gallup poll show that a US consumer faith and belief in the Fed is at more or less all-time lows. And this would be really weighing on policymakers who will be petrified that if they don't credibly crush inflation, then higher inflation will get embedded into consumer and business expectations. And then that will in turn bleed into wage claims. Another concerning development on this front has been the gigantic recent increase in the minimum and award wages. So here in Australia, we've seen the minimum wage increased by 8.6%, really stunning the RBA, which had assumed that it would uh, rise by about 4 to 5%. We also saw award wages increase by 5.75%. And our analysis implies that this will flow through to impact about one in four workers. So there's just no doubt that we're seeing expectations of persistently problematic inflation flow through to wage demands. And we can actually see this manifest quite visibly in recent Data on newly negotiated enterprise bargaining agreements showing a very substantial increase in wage growth, jumping from about two and three quarters percent to circa four percent. Now, the RBA recently argued that nominal wage growth of circa four percent is not necessarily a bad thing, and indeed could be consistent with its meeting its price stability targets, specifically uh, headline inflation over the cycle within its two to three percent target band. This was subject to the condition that productivity, specifically labour productivity, remained robust. But unfortunately, we've seen one of the biggest slumps in labour productivity in the post-war period. And this is driving the biggest increase in the wage cost of businesses producing products in many decades, excluding some of the distortions introduced by the pandemic. In particular, the wage cost of producing stuff is growing not at 4% per annum, but at circa 8% per annum as a result of this really poor labour productivity. And it's, the wage cost of producing stuff, technically known as unit labour costs, that are the key forecast variable in the RBA's models that attempt to predict future inflation. And this is very much a global phenomenon. We're seeing the same dynamics play out in other countries. Uh, and it is, for example, something that's really worrying the uh, European Central Bank right now. I guess the multi-trillion dollar question is how far the RBA really has to go. If we look at every hiking cycle since 1994, the RBA has, on average, lifted its cash rate about 1.6 percentage points above the estimate of the neutral cash rate at the time now if we include the the 1988 to 89 hiking cycle the median peak rba cash rate rises from 1.6 percentage points above neutral to two percentage points the last hiking cycle in 2009-10 was something of an anomaly with the cash rate only going 0.6 percentage points above neutral as I mentioned before, we're currently only 0.3 percentage points above neutral. Uh, that is that 3.8% number the RBA is now pointing as its key parameter estimate for the neutral variable. So if you take that 1.62 percentage point range for the peak RBA cash rate in every cycle since 88, that's the you know, median peak estimate, then you know, it's not inconceivable that we could see the cash rate move into the fives.
1: So Chris, where are the terminal rates priced for other countries?
0: Yeah, this is where we see another, um, I think, discontinuity of sorts or paradox. As we discussed earlier, Ying, as the RBA terminal rate is currently priced at a pretty benign 4.7%. Yet markets are projecting uh, much higher terminal cash rates across our peers. Uh, For instance, Canada's priced to go to 5.1%. The US is projected to get to 5.5%, noting that that's actually less than where the Fed is fingering. New Zealand is priced to go to 5.8% and markets expect the Bank of England to get to 6.5%. And I guess the fear for us is if you think about where the RBA cash rate has on average sat over the last few decades, we normally see it about 1.6 percentage points or 160 basis points above the US Federal Reserve funds rate. And yet we're currently 100 basis points or more below that level, specifically below the Fed funds rate. And if you want to get really negative and you think that the Fed's terminal rate is priced correctly and that empirical heuristic of Australia sitting 150 to 200 basis points above the Fed on average through the cycle, that portends the possibility of a cash rate that could actually, end up with a six-handle. Now, to be clear, that's not our central case, but the fact remains that Australia's unemployment rate is at circa half-century lows. Our services inflation is as high, if not higher, than what we're seeing in the US. We have goods inflation that's higher than what has been evidenced in the US. Our annualised quarterly core inflation is also more elevated than the US numbers. So it's currently not clear why markets are pricing in a materially lower terminal rate for Australia vis-a-vis our key global peers, when historically that simply hasn't been the case. And furthermore, the contemporaneous data doesn't seem to rationalise that conclusion. A popular argument is naturally the propensity for Australian borrowers to use variable rate or floating rate mortgages. And there's certainly good evidence that the pass-through of RBA cash rate changes in Australia historically has been speedier than what we've seen in other countries, where most of the debt is fixed rate. In the US, they have preponderance of 30-year fixed rate loans rather than variable rate products. Yet The RBA's own research shows that while the pass-through is quicker in Australia, the net total impact of a cash rate change is actually quite similar in the end to peers overseas. The big curveball in all of this has been something that we only got a good handle on recently, and that is the advent of these enormous cash buffers that consumers hoarded during the pandemic. So recall, we saw you know, all-time record household savings rates during the pandemic. And this was driven as a function of two things. Firstly, you know, people were locked down, particularly in Australia. So it was actually physically hard to go out and spend money. At the same time, in Australia, we also had particularly generous fiscal transfers and obviously aggressive monetary stimulus in the form of zero rate uh, and quantitative easing or money printing. But what Koulibar's research has shown is that the size of the cash buffers built up by Aussie households as the share of their income was much, much larger than what we saw in the US and Europe, almost twice as large as the US consumer buffers and multiples the European consumer buffers. And this really uh, throws a fly in the ointment of policy, of course, because it means that households and businesses can be much more resistant to the impact of tighter monetary policy than they would have been in more normal price cycles because they have these huge cash buffers protecting them from the impact of higher rates. And our research also demonstrates that in Australia, the US and Europe, consumers are actively eating into these buffers. So they're spending these savings. And that spending is, of course, a huge new source of latent demand and therefore, persistent growth and inflation, and almost certainly explains why, anecdotally, if you travel around Australian cities, lots of people comment that restaurants and general activity seems to be a lot higher than it might otherwise be in the face of 400 basis points worth of rate hikes. Another wrinkle in Australia, which we've discussed many times on the podcasting is is The simple fact that whereas uh, previously about 85% of all Aussie home loans were variable rate because of the unique innovation in the pandemic of the RBA lending the banks almost $190 billion of fixed rate three-year money at a cost of 0.1% to 0.25% per annum, banks then were encouraged and did indeed make available all these super cheap fixed rate home loans at circa 2% interest rates. And that changed the stock Shares are fixed versus floating from 85.15 to circa 60.40. And so therefore you have about a third, slightly more than a third of all borrowers who are newly insulated for a period of time from the impact of tighter monetary policy until, of course, those fixed rate loans roll into floating rate product, which they're now doing and they will continue to do over the next two years. And this has absolutely delayed the impact of those policy changes, those you know, 400 basis points of hikes. So I guess the theme here for listeners as is this is just going to be a more elongated and iterative cycle than perhaps folks thought originally. And the biggest game changer is the materialization of these enormous multi-billion dollar cash buffers in Australia. which on our research are actually very consistently held as a share of income from poor to rich households and young to older households.
1: So Chris, what are you seeing in the housing market at present? And does that jive with your central case?
0: Yeah, so super interesting, is So our central case was a peak to trough drawdown as a result of this monetary policy tightening cycle of 15 to 25%. And that was across the capital city markets. And what we saw through the period May last year to February was that the five capital city index from CoreLogic fell, interestingly, by exactly 10.0% on a daily basis. And in cities like Sydney, prices fell by exactly 14.0%. And I'm pretty sure they were the two biggest drawdowns in Aussie and Sydney house prices in about 40 years, aside from the 2017 to 2019 episode, where, for example, the Capital City Index, I think, fell by 10.8%, and the Sydney Index declined by about 15%. In inflation-adjusted terms, the Capital City Index did indeed fall by 15 percentage points. But to be clear, we were looking for a nominal correction of north of 15%. We haven't adjusted our views at this point, notwithstanding a really interesting and frankly surprising bounce in prices that started in February. And that has resulted in city prices climbing by more than 5%. Capital city prices, I think, are up now by north of 4% over that period. Now, the popular analysis of this, which I think surprised everybody, was that it was population growth and immigration driven. But we actually had very strong population growth and migration in our models. And in fact, in July 21, we forecast that we would see a tsunami of net overseas migration into Australia once the government reopened all the borders. And we expected to see a return to Australia's normal, albeit globally very elevated, population growth rates of about 1% to 2% per annum. There's also been talk, just speaking to real estate agents, of Asian money, particularly Chinese and Vietnamese money, flowing back into some of the East Coast markets. But when we look at the global data sets, what we actually find is that this is very much an international phenomenon. So Australia is emphatically not special. We saw most global housing markets suffer very big corrections from either late 21 through to early 22 as hiking cycles commenced and equally we have seen a consistent global bounce in house prices in New Zealand, the US, Canada and the UK all starting around the same time in the first half of 2023. So this is not idiosyncratic to Australia and it is indeed a global dynamic, it might be attributable to global expectations around the course of monetary policy and the future path of interest rates. What we know with certainty, is is that in late 2022, headline inflation rates globally had all started to drop. There was also an initial and encouraging decline in core inflation rates. This in turn encouraged very benign or anodyne expectations with respect to the peak terminal cash rates around the world. At one point, the RBA was priced for a peak terminal cash rate late last year, running around three and a half percent. And this precipitated the narrative around soft landings, the ability of economies to avoid recessions, the potency of monetary policy, the job potentially being done. And certainly in Australia, in the first half and particularly the first quarter of 2023, there was a cacophony, of course, for the end of the hiking cycle, which also coincided with the RBA temporarily pausing its interest rate hikes. And perhaps this false dawn encouraged many households to think that they could go out and party like it's 1999. Certainly, Ying, as if you look at all of our colleagues partying in Europe right now, it does feel like 1999. And to get back on the bid in many risk asset classes. And that's another key point here. Not only have we seen a bounce in house prices, but that also, I think, very interestingly coincides with with an even stronger bounce in equities and other you know super risky asset classes like income and utility free cryptocurrencies in more recent months as there has been an aggregation of evidence that the inflation cycle was not actually decelerating nearly as fast as central banks had hoped, and that the Fed, for example, was going to continue to hike interest rates. Bond markets have now started pricing in much higher terminal rates. And most significantly, in the world's largest market, the US, bond markets have completely removed the 100 basis points or one percentage point worth of interest rate cuts that they were remarkably pricing for the Fed this year. So I really think that the equity, property and crypto junkies late last year and early this year were... We're queuing off the deep interest rate cuts priced for central banks in the second half of 2023 and taking the view that there'd either be a a soft landing or a short and sharp recession, which they could look through to the other side and then continue business as usual. I think Ying is only in very recent trading sessions as the US 10 year government bond yield has jumped from the low 3% territory to north of. 4%. Have equities and these other riskier asset classes started to focus on the new normal and the dawning reality that we're going to face uh, an elongated period of structurally higher interest rates, structurally lower incomes and growth, and our long-held forecast since January 2022 that the global economy is going to recession, the European economy is going to recession, the US economy is going to recession. And sadly, this may be a very muddy and bloody battle to rest those icky, inert, stubborn, recalcitrant and highly resistant core inflation rates back down to earth. And by earth, of course, I mean the central bank's price stability targets of around 2%. In the background, we are definitely seeing some signs of stress. Global corporate defaults are at their highest level since 2010. US insolvencies are at their highest level since uh, 2010 as well. Here in Australia, we've seen a big spike in insolvencies, albeit coming off an incredibly low base. Based on the latest month of data, uh, locally, 868 businesses went bust which was the largest number since 2015. But it's hard not to think that there's so much more pain to come. So coming back to the Aussie housing market and your original questioning is, we think this is a dead cap bounce and the market's going to weaken in the second half of the year. And uh, the correction that started in May 2022 will continue. And while this data is very, very preliminary, if we look at the daily core residential property price indices, which are very accurate, they use a hedonic regression-based technology to control for the compositional bias induced by the types of properties that may or may not be trading day to day. And they show two things. One, that there has definitely been a recent deceleration in the capital gains, which were you know, stunningly strong between February and uh, the end of June. And I'm just looking at the data right now, Yingers, and on the 9th of July, I see the first dip in prices uh, in quite a while. Now, that could be noise. In fact, it probably is noise, but it is adding to that broader signal that whatever the bounce was in the first half of the year may be slowing down or coming to an end entirely. As part of our on-the-ground liaison, we do speak to biggest real estate agents in Australia, and they have also been telling us that they're expecting a wave of listings in the second half of the year. This little mini boom in prices was based off incredibly low activity levels, uh, very, very low volumes and very low listings. But as more and more stress seeps into the mortgage market, we are going to see more listings. And anecdotally, agents are telling us that they're sensing a sharp increase in the anxiety of vendors who had been holding fire, who suddenly now want to bring their properties to market to try and capture the best of this bounce.
1: So Chris, on the topic of the housing market, what about defaults and mortgage arrears? Are they still very benign?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting subject as well, Yingers. As you know, our systems track the delinquencies on all securitized Aussie home loans, more or less live. And what we've seen is some really interesting developments. We've seen a generalised increase in 30-day delinquencies. However, the delinquencies on bank balance sheets that are regulated by APRA remain incredibly benign. So they're actually still at historically low levels. In contrast, we're seeing the delinquencies on non-bank home loans rise very, very sharply to what are already historically elevated levels. Now, if you look at all loans written by non-banks, they have much, much higher default rates than banks because they're not regulated by APRA and they can do more or less whatever they want. And naturally, non-banks also don't have the benefit of cheap deposits, very cheap RBA liquidity, and relatively cheap bond markets in the same way banks do. So they can't compete against the banks in the normal or standard or low-risk home loan markets. They're basically forced to compete where the banks don't really participate in the higher-risk lending sectors. So you have a big adverse selection bias on non-bank balance sheets. And particularly when you compositionally adjust The securitized home loan data, which you have to do, and surprisingly, S and P does not do this, and our peers don't do this. But the delinquencies reported on securitized home loans are simply an average across all the loans. And every time there's a new bond issue known as a residential mortgage-backed security issue, the portfolio of loans they bring to market is always default-free. That is, they cherry-pick loans to exclude any loans that are delinquent, and that means new issuance artificially pushes down the average delinquency rate across all loans. And we've seen a huge increase in new issuance over recent years from non-bank lenders. At the same time, there has been a concurrent dramatic decrease in RMBS issuance from banks. So if you don't adjust these data with hedonic regression technologies, you get a spurious finding that it actually looks like non-bank delinquencies are lower than bank delinquencies, especially when you compare their loans on a more like-for-like basis and strip out all the non-banks' dodgy, non-conforming loans, and only examine their highest-quality, best so-called prime loans. And unadjusted, if you do that, you would arrive at the conclusion, which some of our peers have done, that you know they've claimed that non-banks actually have lower delinquency rates than banks. Now, of course, this is totally counterintuitive because they're unregulated and you know, demonstrably much riskier. But as soon as you control for the impact of new issuance, you find that actually, firstly, uh, overall, the loans written by non banks have much higher default rates or delinquency rates than bank loans, literally, multiples bank arrears rates. And even when you only cherry pick out the best prime non bank loans and you sit them alongside bank prime loans, what you find is the default rates are similar. Non banks don't, as some claim, have lower default rates. But then what you see is in any stress scenario like March 2020 or now today, a huge increase in non-bank arrears rates on their prime loans that is much higher than bank-reported arrears rates, which is really a clear canary in the coal mine apropos the quality and risk of those loans. So when we look at prime non-bank and bank loans, we're seeing a big spike in the non-bank prime arrears or delinquency rates to once again historically elevated levels whereas we're not seeing the same spike in bank primaries. So while RMBS spreads have moved wider and it's been the worst performing asset class arguably in the investment grade space for some time and while some investors love buying lots of RMBS because it's very liquid, and their portfolios therefore don't report any official volatility and it's a good way to jack up the average credit rating on your portfolio because even the dodgiest subprime lenders in Australia issued AAA rated or AA rated RMBS paper that has absolutely no secondary liquidity. Uh, We haven't been attracted by the sector at all and exited in early 2021 and have no current intention to return to it in the very short term. So
1: Chris, do you think we're getting enough of a risk premium from property and equities?
0: Yeah, Yingers, that's the existential asset allocation question. And there's been some really good research on this subject produced by Morgan Stanley, and we'll be publishing some in due course as well. And they find that the US equity risk premium, which is the extra return you get above a risk-free 10-year US government bond, is much lower than it has been in a very, very long time. Unfortunately, on the S&P 500, for example, the current risk premium is only 1.5% compared to its average level since 2008 of 4 to 5%. And that presages very, very poor equity performance going forward and almost certainly informs Morgan Stanley's fair value estimate for the S&P 500, which is some 30% below its current level. And while Morgan Stanley says this raises the risk of a sharp equities correction, and we wouldn't disagree with that, I think it's just as likely we could have a period of very poor equity returns for many years to come. You talk about risk premiums, I mean, if you just look at Aussie residency property in Sydney and Melbourne, you're probably earning about 3 to 4% before transaction costs and depreciation and uh, maintenance costs on an investment property, uh, an apartment, say. Net, it's almost certainly more like 2 to 3%. So you're getting 2 to 3% net in Aussie resi as a yield, whereas you know, term deposits are paying 4% to 5%. Aussie 10-year government bonds are paying north of 4%. Uh, New South Wales state government bonds are paying around 5%. CBA senior ranking bonds, which are incredibly liquid and you know, almost risk-free, are paying about 5.5%. CBA's tier 2 bonds, which are also very liquid and relatively low risk, are paying interest rates of about 65 to 7%. And CBA hybrids, which are riskier than their bonds, but run about 30% of the risk of equities in terms of both their observed volatility and the drawdowns in, say, March 2020, they're paying about 7.2%. You compare that to CBA shares, they're paying a dividend yield, which if you gross it up for franking credits, offers only 5.9% or a cash yield of 4.7%. And the overall Aussie share market, again, is paying a cash yield of about 4.7% or grossed up for franking. About six percent, and I think this asset allocation conundrum is is why you're seeing the likes of Australian Super, which runs over $275 basically saying it's diverting a lot of its new inflows to fixed income and it's not investing in commercial real estate where we're obviously seeing a chain reaction of problems just start to unfold. And we would argue you'll see the same sorts of dramas materialize in all illiquid asset classes as they adjust very reluctantly and very slowly to the new normal of cash rates paying you 5% or more. So this really portends problems for, as we've discussed before me, Times on the podcast, a liquid high yield bonds, a liquid private credit, commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity. It's definitely my view that we're not getting at all an attractive equity risk premium. And that's because the world's been battling between these two schools of thought. You know, on the one hand, it's going to be a hiking cycle that has ended or is about to end. There'll be a thread the needle soft landing, which people can look through to and are presuming that past rates of growth and corporate earnings will prevail after that adjustment. The alternative paradigm is we are going to have an iterative multi-year battle trying to bring inflation back to 2%. This is going to require structurally much higher interest rates and basically tremendous demand destruction. And that means killing businesses, creating lots of job losses, pushing up unemployment rates sharply to try and then get wage growth under control and then ultimately inflation under control. And I think the worrying thing is is that you know, the re-acceleration in house prices, equities, crypto, they're all telling us the same story, which is that monetary policy is just not tight enough. And if you're questioning that at all, just look at unemployment rates. They've barely Budge from their pandemic lows. In New Zealand, they've gone from 3.2 to 3.4%. Here in Australia, we've gone from 3.4 to 3.6%. The US has gone from 3.4 to 3.7%. Britain has gone from 3.6 to 3.8%. And Canada's moved from 4.9 to 5.2%. Now, most countries, these current Jobless rates are at or near half-century lows and miles, crucially, below the so-called full employment threshold of unemployment, typically estimated to be around 5%, that is required to create enough slack in the labour market so that we don't have the dawn of the wage price spirals that, unfortunately, we seem to be witnessing today.
1: So, Chris, what about the bond market more broadly? What do you currently like
0: and dislike? Uh, Ying is the question that I'm grappling with 24-7 and that our 12 traders and PMs and 12 analysts are likewise constantly uh, iterating through. Well, we definitely like some sovereign bond markets and we think that Aussie 10-year government bond yields at sub 1% in 2020 were demonstrably unattractive but at north of 4% clearly look much more appealing. In addition, we know that the federal budget has been in tremendous health, producing a very big surplus, which is forcing the Treasury to in turn massively reduce their debt issuance. We're continuing to avoid highly cyclical corporate bond markets that are likely to fare poorly in any recession. We think recessions, as you know, likely globally and also increasingly likely here in Australia. And the other problem with the corporate bond market is there has been persistent illiquidity, which makes it very hard to move in and out of positions, which we like to do. Obviously, if you're a fire and forget fund manager and you're happy to make a bet and hope it pays off and be forced to hold to maturity, that's fine. But that's not acceptable for our much more activist staff. Having said that, episodically, we are seeing really attractive corporate issues from very, very strong oligopolies and or monopolies that we like. So, you know, for instance, we've recently invested in Sydney Airport, Melbourne Airport and Pfizer bond issues overseas in euros and US dollars. Also, we're uh, quite attracted to global bank bond spreads right now. Global financials, uh, especially in US dollars and euros, uh, look very cheap, particularly particularly particularly, I guess, amongst ultra high grade issuers. I think some listeners might remember that when UBS bought Credit Suisse, that shotgun marriage was forced over a weekend. And on the first Monday following the deal, UBS's share price fell 16% intercession. And their senior bond spreads remarkably moved 110 basis points wider on the day to as much as 350 basis points above risk-free German government bonds. And the whole world was trying to argue that UBS buying credits risk was a terrible deal for UBS and would propagate lots of contagion risk. Our deep credit and fundamental equity research suggested the exact opposite. We thought the deal would be massively uh, both equity and credit positive for UBS. That view has been since vindicated by UBS review they're going to report a Swiss franc, I think, 36 billion gain on the acquisition. Effectively, they uh, picked up Credit Suisse at a 36 billion Swiss franc discount to fair value, which was you know, exactly what we argued at the time. They've also got 150 billion Swiss franc uh worth of cheap loans from the Swiss National Bank, their central bank, and they've got a, a taxpayer loss indemnity for up to uh 9 billion Swiss franc worth of losses on the credit Swiss balance sheet. So on that Monday and then the following Tuesday and Wednesday, we went out and bought, I think in Aussie dollar terms, about five, six hundred million dollars of UBS senior bonds, and they've performed really well. As they start to slowly mature, but they still look very cheap. And we really haven't taken much in the way of profits on those positions. In fact, after the merger was formally consummated and the Credit Swiss senior bonds technically became UBS senior bonds, so their tickers actually changed from Credit Swiss to UBS. We then started buying the new UBS slash old Credit Swiss senior bonds, and again they've performed really well. Uh, we also like you know high grade strong Aussie bank senior ranking bonds, some of the AAA rated so-called covered bonds, which are backed by both balance sheet loans and give you direct recourse to the issuer. So these covered bonds actually technically sit above bank deposits in the capital structure. They're secured. A bank deposit is an unsecured loan to a bank and they're the safest instruments a bank can issue. And we've been buying covered bonds from the likes of Suncorp, Bendigo and BOQ. We also don't mind the major bank senior bonds, which are still about 10 to 15 basis points cheap to some of the recent fair value curves. The major bank tier two bonds, if we may mentioned in the discussion on equity risk premium are also still very cheap in all currencies. They look attractive in Aussie dollars, more attractive in US dollars and euros, I should say. And that's been a position we've been focused on for some time. Uh, We've recently pleaded an exit out of the state government bond market, rotating back into bank bonds, but we're still very active in the state government bond market. We've exited about $9.5 billion of secondary positions over the last year, just taking profits and rolling those positions into relatively cheaper bank credit, which was trading obviously on much, much wider spreads and offered far more attractive carry. And while state government bond spreads are still superficially attractive by historical levels, we obviously know that within some of the states, there are Persistent propensities for political hawk barrelling, uh, particularly in Victoria, where they're running uh, a massive structural deficit. And obviously, under Dan Andrews, the uh, Labour Premier, but also in New South Wales, under the Liberal Perité government, there was this crazy spending that was completely out of control and really deteriorated under the teal like New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane. Encouragingly, the new New South Wales government led by Chris Means and Daniel Mookie looks supremely impressive. I think Daniel Mookie is the best treasurer in Australia by a long margin, and it looks like he is committing to follow through with using the fifteen billion dollars New South Wales debt retirement fund to reduce New South Wales's debt burden, which has increased since Perotay created that fund in twenty eighteen from fifty eight billion dollars to about one hundred and seventy billion dollars today, and. You know, it's going to be within a few years at circa $280 billion, pushing New South Wales's annual interest bill to an amazing $8 billion a year. This is something that we have argued since 2021 needed to be done. As many listeners will recall, instead, the New South Wales government at the time, the Perrottet government, argued that they prefer to invest that $15 billion in global equities and junk bonds and private equity and run basically a leverage carry trade because they're also proposing to divert all New South Wales state royalties and state-owned corporation dividends to the Debt Retirement Fund despite running ongoing cash budget deficits at the consolidated government level. So they were de facto debt funding contributions into that fund and I think... uh, Daniel Mookie sensationally revealed a couple of weeks ago that New South Wales was actually proposing north of $25 billion. I think his number was actually in present value terms over $28 billion of debt-funded cash contributions to the debt retirement fund. Now, why, of course, would you do this which is pretty much unprecedented for any Australian state government and almost unprecedented for every other state government on the planet. Why would you uh, uh, raise lots of extra debt to punt global equity markets to run a huge leverage carry trade when you are? in record levels of debt that had increased multifold just in recent years. And the only clear beneficiary seems to be the folks who dreamt up the idea running uh, New South Wales investment arm, T Corp, who uh, paid remarkably well. And based on T Corp's last annual report, they had 204 executives paid on average almost $285,000 a year. Interestingly, that was down from the prior annual reports estimate of about 180 staff paid more than $320,000 a year on average. I ran that. The numbers on that latest estimate of Uh, an average total compensation per employee of 285000 a year and it's some 81% above the average compensation at the RBA which is notorious for paying its staff extremely well by public service standards. Of course, T-Corp's CEO was desperate to drive funds under management growth and the only way to do that is to convince the New South Wales government to issue lots of debt to fund contributions into T-Corp which T-Corp's executives are paid uh, management fees to run. So they run the debt retirement fund and they earn management fees on it which goes straight to their salaries and bonuses. It's a pretty ridiculous state of affairs. And sadly, uh, Victoria seems to be following a similar path. They sold their Vic Rhodes asset for $7.9 billion and told people, the politicians in Victoria said they'd use that to pay back COVID debt, quote unquote, but instead it's going into global financial markets. And they're arguing it will reduce their debt. It's pretty preposterous. So with the state governments assisting with the propensities for spending money and political pork barreling, uh, we remain concerned about the totality of issuance or supply in the state government bond market, which is now for the first time driving mm-hmm. annual supply that actually exceeds the amount of debt issued by the Commonwealth. And so we'll probably have well north of $100 billion of state government bond issuance in the next 12 months. And you know, that's based on what are probably pretty optimistic budget assumptions about GST revenues and stamp duty receipts. We do have WA running a surplus and we had Queensland report a surplus but again, the Queenslanders have spent all those savings and there's no evidence of any willingness for fiscal reform in Victoria. The one positive prospect is New South Wales. So we'll remain active in the state government bond market, particularly I think the new issue market is interesting where issuers are willing to pay attractive new issue concessions that could encourage participation. But as of this podcasting years, we don't have any secondary exposures. We did see some improvement in hybrid spreads in the sense that they moved out to the low 300s, I think 322 area. Started June, hybrids actually rallied in June as uh, the market finally absorbed the 1.55 billion dollar CBAPM deal that you mentioned, Yingers, and I would say hybrid spreads don't look terrible here, sitting at the circa 290 area over bank bills. Noting that, as you said, you know the bank bill swap rate's gone from zero percent to 4.35 percent, so we're earning seven seven and a half percent all in franked yields on hybrids, which I think many retail investors would find exceedingly attractive. We have shifted our asset allocation within beta shares, active Australian hybrid ETF, which can invest in cash, senior bonds, tier two bonds and hybrids. So it's really a full capital structure ETF. And we've moved from a position of being 99% invested in hybrids last year to being about 60% invested right now with the remaining 40% in tier two. That's a fairly significant shift. We really like the cash yields on tier two and the multiple that hybrids at tier two got down to about one times, which had never been seen before earlier in the year. It's improved to about one and a half times today, but that's still a little below its historical heuristic around two times. And we're happy to have that diversification into the even more liquid T2 bond markets. We've also had some senior exposure in HBID over the last 12 months.
1: So, Chris, I mentioned the sustained alpha we've been generating from our long-duration strategy called the Kulabar Active Composite Bond Fund. Can you talk us through whether you like or dislike
0: duration right now? Yeah, is. I think we're very authentic in terms of our public pronouncements on you know, what we believe. And in late 2021, you know, we were very clear saying that we thought our own market would perform very poorly. We argued that investment grade credit spreads, particularly financial spreads, would move 100 to 150 basis points wider, which is a very big move. That's precisely what we got over the first half of 2022. We argued equities would fall 30%, and the SP 500 fell 26, Nasdaq fell 36. Uh, we argued crypto would get hammered in concert with equities, obviously, you know, Bitcoin fell some 78%. And in addition to credit getting beaten up, we argued that duration would get absolutely destroyed. What do we mean by kind of duration getting destroyed? It's really the difference between fixed rate bonds and floating rate bonds. Floating rate bonds pay interest rates that reset every quarter based on moves in the RBA cash rate. If the cash rate goes up and down, the interest you earn on a floating rate note will move up and down with the RBA cash rate. The price doesn't normally adjust. All other things being equal. With a fixed rate bond, there's no yield adjustment. The price adjusts. And obviously, if you fix the interest rate on a fixed rate bond at very low rates and rates rise, you're going to do badly. The price will fall. And so someone buying that bond will get a higher yield than the coupon that you fixed at through that downward price adjustment. So with you know, 10-year Aussie government bond yields and US bond yields were sitting at about 1% in December 2021, we argued they needed to go to... North of 3.2%, that's where they went. And more recently in the last few months, they've gone from circa 3.3 area to over four. And we argued that would crush duration and indeed fixed rate bonds. So duration is a kind of, I guess, a uh, market jargon for getting fixed rate bond exposure. Fixed rate bonds had their worst year, more or less than 100 years in FY22. But now that those yields have gone from 1% to 4%, fixed rate bonds look much more attractive. And I absolutely think averaging into duration, we've argued this since June 22. And I think it's generally been directionally the right call. you know you want to average into duration if you believe that you know at some point this hiking cycle was going to end and obviously every time they hike we get closer to the terminal rates. Yes, we've argued that those terminal rates could be in the high fours, possibly even fives here in Australia. but crucially the higher those short-term interest rates go. so those cash rates that we're talking about are overnight interest rates that the central banks target, the higher those cash rates go, then the corollary of that will be lower longer term rates normally and inversion in yield curves as they price in significant recessions. And that's what we've seen kind of come to pass uh, in 2022 and 2023. So you could have you know, duration actually performing quite well, notwithstanding central banks are reaching the final phase of their hiking cycle, hopefully. Of course, you know if they have to hike many hundreds of basis points beyond what we think, our markets are pricing then duration could struggle a little bit and certainly we saw in the month of june you know the composite bond index which is a fixed rate index that is the main aussie bond benchmark uh, and it carries about five and a half years duration that got belted around. It was down about 2% of the month as bond yields spiked. <laughs> so I think you want to average into duration in any major risk off event, those bond yields are going to come crashing back down and you're going to get spectacular performance from duration that is fixed rate bond exposures. As you mentioned, our active composite bond strategy, we would argue based on our analysis and the FE fund info data net of retail fees, it's outperformed every known peer since inception over virtually every single period, one year, two year, three year, five. The cat but crucially, when we run risk-adjusted analysis, looking at its sharp ratio, so that's the return of the fund over the RBA cash rate divided by its volatility. When we look at its sharp ratio, it has a higher sharp ratio than the Composite Bond Index, but also a higher sharp ratio than all peers. And then if you really want to get wonky, you could look at the Sortino ratio, which is the excess return above cash divided by only the downside volatility. Again, we outperform the index in all peers. And then you could look at the Calmar ratio, which is the excess return above cash divided by the worst loss. And again, we outperform everybody. That risk analysis is very important. It does run higher tracking error to the index, which tracking error depending on whether you look at daily or monthly returns um, daily, I think we've averaged about 1.3% tracking error. So it's not seeking to replicate the index, it's seeking to beat the index. I think that's the key point. So there will be periods where it outperforms the index and then periods where it underperforms the index. When we look at composite bond index months that are negative, uh, since we launched the active composite bond strategy in uh, circa February 2017, we were awarded a mandate by a super fund that had done a global search through a researcher called B Finance. They looked at 157 managers and selected Coulterbar. Uh, And if we look at all months where the composite bond index has a negative return, we outperform the index in 77% of all those negative months, which I don't think is a pretty stellar result. And and our typical median outperformance is 15 basis points. Which is also meaningful. We also outperform the index in most positive months as well. So we think we have strong downside protections. And then when we look at our conditional value at risk or CVAR, we run it very, very close to the index CVAR. So while we have more flexibility and levers in the composite bond strategy to outperform the index, um, we don't believe we're taking you know, massively greater risks, at least not measured by our tracking and our VOL and CVAR. And on the VOL pointing is. I think our vol in 2023 has actually been less than the indexes vol. Well. So volatility, return volatility, the initiated. And I think using daily returns, historically, we've averaged volatility. that's only about 25 basis points or 0.25% above the index vol. Which we can't give any personal advice. This is just general product information and past performance is no guarantee to future returns. And Please read all the product disclosure statements to better understand the risks of, of anything we've discussed today and, and consult a financial advisor before you contemplate doing anything. But yeah, I think I do like duration years.
1: And finally, Chris, how do you see this economic cycle playing
0: out? Well, I think we've kind of covered this thing, but I think in summary, I'd say the cycle will be elongated and iterative. You know, our brains have been hardwired for hedonistic, quick, myopic fixes, care of the ultra low interest rate policies that have been common in the post 2008 period. But given extraordinary and persistent inflation pulses, uh, cheap money is no longer an option. So I think uh, listeners should prepare for long-term pain trades in risky and especially illiquid asset classes that are likely going to take many years to adjust to the new normal of very high and attractive risk-free cash interest rates. And that's it. Well, listen, thanks everyone for listening. Um, We really appreciate it. Hopefully you enjoyed the Q&A format. And if you ever want to reach out to us, don't hesitate. Info at callbackcapital.com for them to send questions if you guys to ask. Feel free and look forward to hearing from you soon and engaging with you next month. Thank you.
1: This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.